Howdy and welcome to episode 7 of For the Greater Defense with retired Colonel Matt Gill. On this episode, we will be discussing his time at the United States Army War College Fellowship Program at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, Thank you for joining us again. Howdy. So, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the United States Army War College Fellowship Program and what that entails? So, the the Army has a really good education process for its officers, uh, warrant officers, and and non-commissioned officers. But when you get promoted to 06 Colonel, a few get selected to go to the United States Army War College. There's the Navy War College, Air Force, Marine Corps. And that is where they take senior officers, brand new senior officers, and attempt to get them to think at the strategic and the executive level. Uh, and, and the vast majority actually go to Carlisle Barracks or up to Newport, Rhode Island, or Montgomery, Alabama for the Air Force. And uh, But I had been selected to go to the University of Texas in Austin to, uh, to do an academic fellowship. So instead of going to the War College in Carlisle, I was one of a few that that showed up to the University of Texas. You are, you know, told to be a strategic scout for the Army. Uh, you are a senior leader there uh, to represent the Army in classes. You're auditing your classes. I chose to do the work. I chose to do the reading. I was there to learn, and I did my academics there at the LBJ School. And I was given an assignment by the Army to design the future of Army intelligence, essentially 2035, 2045. So what did that research entail, and what was the focus on while you were there? So one, that, that really was a problem set. I, I don't think I was ready to handle at that point in time. I don't think academically or through my experience. I'd just been in the fight, and to be removed from the fight for a year and all of a sudden told, hey, this is this is the problem we want you to solve for us, and then, oh, by the way, you can't talk to anybody in the Army. And I was like, well, if I'm solving an Army problem and I can't talk to the Army, how do I do this? And so I would kind of figure that out. Uh, well, I, I went back to the basics, right? I went to, back to intelligence preparation of the battlefield, IPB process that we teach. You know, we look at the terrain, uh, you, you know, what are the effects of the terrain, what are the threats, and then what are the likely courses of action. And that's how I essentially planned to solve that problem. What is really good is I had a lot of great professors at UT's LBJ school, and, and I took a couple right there at the, at the McCombs Business School and also at the law school. And it had some great advisors. Now, uh, you know, the University of Texas has a reputation for being, you know, a little bit more liberal than other universities. And I, and I found that to be true and untrue. I, I found that it's filled with a lot of professors who, who really are, are just great civil servants. They care about that. Uh, they care that our, our army is going to head off in a, in a good direction to, you know, to protect American our security, but do it in a good way. The next problem I wanted to, to figure out was through what filters was I going to view the future, not just sit there and protect, uh, predict the future based on the present. I had to kind of think differently. Okay, well, what will Intel be, uh, you know, 10, 15 years from now? Will AI still be at narrow AI or will we be in an advanced stage of computing? Will machine learning really be a part of intelligence processing? What about acquisition systems and collection systems? How much more advanced can they actually get? And the answer that I found out was, oh, they can get a whole lot more advanced. But at the same time, we still have to be good at the basics. We still have to study our threats. We have to work with the civilian populace way more uh, than we do now. And and that's how we kind of started down the road. And you mentioned working with the civilian populace. What do you think the value added was for being at the LBJ school as opposed to being in Carlisle, surrounded by other military officers? Well, it's the intent behind the fellowship program, and I think it's great, is that I got alternate perspectives. 
some of them were anti-military, and I wanted to hear them. I really did. Uh, some of them were way too pro-military, and I needed to still hear those as well, uh, kind of almost protectionists of the rice bowls of, of defense. But I, I kind of exited that, and I was talking to not just uh, government leaders, but essentially economic leaders, uh, CEOs, CFOs, uh, CIOs. I wanted to, to see where was America going? Where was the world going? What did they think were threats? And I wanted to get all types of alternate viewpoints so that I didn't stick around in the echo chamber. And what do you think the value or perspective that the private sector can bring to the great power competition or the future of intelligence for the U.S. Army? Yeah, I think a lot of people get this mixed up is the defense sector is the private sector. You know, the, the, the U.S. Army doesn't build tanks. The private sector does. It's the defense industrial base. Uh, you know, we don't build guns in the Army. Somebody else does a private sector. And even Eisenhower kind of talked about it in the 50s. You know, he kind of talked about it from a, a negative standpoint, almost a warning to us. But in the modern world uh, where everything is diffusing and to include technologies to cheap weapon systems and really creative ways to, to kill our fellow human beings, you can't not get right in neck deep inside of the private sector. And, and what a great place, Austin, Texas. Just at that point in time in 2017, it was already a tech hub, but it was exploding at the time. And, you know, from uh, private venture, capital venture money, creating new startups, I was able to sit down with these startups, you know, these three and four person companies, uh, 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, some with PhDs, some not. But they had a view of American security and how they thought they were going to go about it. And I wanted to hear their perspective. So when designing the future of Army intelligence for the year 2035, what were some of the challenges that you saw on the horizon? Well, so I think it's, you know, obviously China, Russia, you've got, you know, wayward North Korea, that's kind of a little bit of uh, erratic actor. And then you've, you've got the uh, instability of the Middle East uh, with Iran kind of leading the charge on that one. And then you get the ebb and flow of our allies. You know, I do remind people that, you know, 50 years ago or over 50 years ago, well over 50 now. Gosh, I'm dating myself. I'm that old. Uh, we actually were at war with Japan, and now they're one of our strongest allies in the Pacific region. Uh, we, we, we went to war against, you know, Nazi Germany, and then I was based in Germany. I grew up in, in Stuttgart, and, 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 and my children were able to, to live in Germany as well. And Germany is one of our greatest allies, militarily and economically. And so I think we have to kind of understand the ebb and flow of friendships, alliances, and enemies. And remember, for a very short period of time during the global war on terror, uh, we were pretty good allies with the Russians. So you got to have to kind of uh, open your mind just a bit. And I think that was one of the greatest things about being at UT Austin was it, just those different perspectives were able to open my mind. Drilling deeper into not just the countries we might face as challenges, but what are some of the issue areas that you view as the biggest challenges for U.S. Army intel? Oh, our economy. You know, our, our gross domestic product. Everything the Army does and the military does in defense spending, that, that's discretionary spending. And if your GDP is not continuing to grow and, you know, if it stays stuck at 2.9% every year for a long period of time, you know, technology isn't cheap. Humans aren't cheap and they get more expensive as they go by. So uh, when you look at research and development, R&D goes into, you know, uh, final production and then it goes out at a gross level. We don't really just buy one tank. We buy a lot of them. Um, those things get more and more expensive. 
And so I, you know, in the research that I found was there is going to be an unhealthy balance for a period of time between discretionary spending and the rising costs of advanced technologies uh, for defense matters. From an intelligence perspective, sensors cost a lot of money. And as we become more reliant on space, that's not any cheaper. You know, SpaceX has reduced the cost in the commercial side and the defense side, but from an intelligence perspective, from space to terrestrial capability, it's getting really, really expensive. While maintaining the context of the rising costs of technical capabilities, what do you think the ICC should do to react to the shifting of the technical environment and the rising cost of these uh, advanced technologies? So the intelligence community has got to stay locked at the basics and remember that all that technology is additive. It's there to help enable us predict human dynamic, to predict what people are doing and what they're going to be doing. We can't let machines do the work for us. Um, there must always be a human in the loop. Looking forward to the future of great power competition, what do you see as the critical vulnerabilities that the U.S. has when facing great power competition? Well, I'm going to go back right now. It's the economy. I think that's our greatest vulnerability right now. Um, the the over-reliance on the themes of globalization. Uh, you know, I don't necessarily know if they've kind of run their course right now. Uh, and then and then the, you're going to see a little bit more isolationists. Uh, but it's obviously our economy, our ability to spend. I mean, we just dropped $40 billion more billion into Ukraine of tax, U.S. taxpayer money. I, I personally think that's probably the right answer. But have we done the cost analysis to the defense industry uh, based on that? From an intelligence perspective, uh, I think one of our biggest challenges is is going to be essentially the acumen of our intelligence professionals. Have we started to create the, the master of everything, the master of none, and at the cost of specialization? And, and while I'll say that we probably are kind of heading down that road and probably have been there for a little while, there's a lot of great intelligence leaders that, that understand, you know, we, we need our intelligence professionals to be truly professional at a topic, at a region, uh, and not be a mile wide and an inch deep, but but really, you know, a couple of inches wide, but a mile deep on a topic. Do you think that's a problem at the, maybe the undergraduate, the graduate level, or simply for the Army in its training environment? From the Army's perspective, there, I think we're trying to do too many things. We're focusing on so many fights. We're spinning so many plates. When it comes back on the intel side of the house, remember in a previous episode, I walked out of a singular problem, Afghanistan, into five separate distinct problems. Uh, and, and, well, you know, you're going to execute your mission. I think from the Army's perspective, we're caught on one side is, uh, you know, we're, we're designing an architecture, one size fits all. But yet not all of our problems are one size fit all architecture. You can't go to the Pacific region with thousands of miles of water between you and the United States uh, with the same intelligence architecture and function as you do facing over to Europe, where we have tons of basing and we, we've got a tremendous amount of capability, and the Middle East, where we still retain a lot of intelligence capability. Do you think that technical capabilities can help bridge that gap in terms of the wide scope of the problem, or does it maybe exacerbate the issue? Well, I don't think it exacerbates the issue. I think we in the intelligence community, especially the Army, have got to figure out, okay, hey, we're coming up with these new technologies. We're spending a ton of money on it. 
do we really know what we want it to do? And that's called requirements. And, and when you go out into the public sphere and you see the requirements, to me, in my opinion, they're very nebulous. Uh, maybe they're just written that way on purpose. But when you, when you bring in an AI, ML-capable ISR you know, aircraft that's, that's manned or unmanned, do you really know what it needs to do? Or did you just create something that needs to see everything? And I think we've spent a lot of years creating ISR assets and, and intelligence collection capability that is continuing to diminish the human factor. And I think we, we've got to get that human factor back into everything we do in the intelligence world. Absolutely. And shifting gears more towards potentially a positive outlook on this situation, what do you see as a critical capability or a few of the critical capabilities the United States has in great power competition? It's people. Absolutely the people. I think every year, even just here at the Bush School and, and other schools, uh, the, the academic institutions and the, and the links between the intelligence community and, and academia Every year we create that next generation of intelligence professional, and they get two years as a graduate student or four years as an undergraduate to kind of hone the basics just a little bit. But what I'm seeing is a generation of students that grew up during the global war on terror. They know war. These are war kids. And whether they had family that were in the war or whatever, it played out every day of their life. Uh, They got to see it. Whereas in when I grew up, it was the Cold War. It was the Soviets coming through the fold of gap, you know, and that was the big scare. But with this next generation, I think that it's already in their DNA to want to serve the security of the United States, whether it's in the intelligence community, military, or, or some other function. But our greatest capability is absolutely our youth. Closing your time at the LBJ School, uh, in the course of your research, what were some of the major takeaways that you had in researching the future of Army Intel? First is uh, get out of the echo chamber. You know, you may not like the politics of somebody that you're talking to, but they have value. They, they have a good, good ideas. They have their own personal ideas. And, and oh, by the way, it's not my army. It's, it's the citizen's army. And, and so if I were to have gone into that research or gone into leading saying this, mine, 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 this is my army, uh, I probably would have had a really stunted view. And I probably wouldn't have opened my mind up to, to more ideas. But, it, you know, the, the United States Army is, is America's army. And, and it's not solely mine. Well, this will close out your time at the LBJ School. What was next for you in your career path? Well, so I had been selected to to be the G2 for 3rd Armored Corps at Fort Hood at the 06 level, uh, and I was really proud of that, really humbled. I don't think I was necessarily uh, the best person for the job, but I was the one that the Army had chosen. Unfortunately, I treated my body like an amusement park overseas for too many years, and and uh, in one day, they, they all catch up to you, right? And, uh, and so... I had a, had a few health issues. Uh, I had to go through some procedures and, and some treatment stuff. And, and kind of at the end of that, the Army had kind of decided that, yeah, you're probably a little bit too damaged to continue on. And so we kind of had this mutual discussion, and, and I think it was the right answer. There is, there is nothing that can compare to when somebody sits you down and says you can't be a soldier anymore. There is no greater wound to a professional soldier than, than hearing those words. But it was the right answer uh, for America's Army. Um, I was, if I had continued on service, there's no telling when the next bout would have happened, when the next injury would have caught up to me. 
Uh, my soldiers didn't deserve that. The Army didn't deserve that. And so we made the choice to, to go ahead and retire, and, and my wife and I talked about it for not all that long. It was really kind of a, this is, you know, this, this makes sense at this point in time. And so after 24 and change years, uh, I hung up my paratrooper boots and uh, took the uniform off, and I came to Texas A&M to be a graduate school professor. Well, we are obviously very grateful to have you here at Texas A&M at the Bush School. And can you share a little bit about what you do at the Bush School? What is, what is your focus when you teach us? Um, I, obviously, we know, but for the audience to know, uh, what, what do your classes focus on? Yeah, there, there was no greater transition from a great Army team to come into the Bush School at Texas A&M to the Intelligence Studies Program. Uh, it was kind of kind of a sleight of hand, but I, I would expect that from uh, an, an agency guy like Jim Olson. He kind of just wanted to meet me and talk to me. And I quickly found myself in an interview, uh, which was great. Well, so what I do here is I am actually the defense side of the Intelligence Studies Program. Uh, 80% of the intelligence community is in the Defense Department anyway. And so I am a part of a wonderful team. Uh, we've got a, a retired NSA analyst. You know, we've got a retired FBI agent and a retired uh, member of the CIA that, that teaches here. And, and I cover down on that. What I focus on is executing intelligence, whether it's from intelligence preparation on the battlefield to creative ways to collect intelligence to informing decision makers. I, you know, what I teach the students here is how do you do intelligence, but also how do you lead it? Well, we are always grateful for the opportunity to to talk to you and learn from your experiences. Uh, this will end the podcast that I've had the opportunity to be a part of. Thankfully, next semester, we will have a new host. McLean Bauer will be joining the podcast team, and I will let her introduce herself. And uh, as, as we move into the next episode, which will be a special episode on Ukraine, she will be taking over. So just say hello, McLean, and welcome onto the team. Hey, Jacob. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to start hosting. Well, Colonel Gill, thank you again for sharing all of your experiences throughout your career. And we look forward to hearing more with you and McLean about uh, present and current issues. Well, thanks, Jacob. It's been really good uh, doing this. And I wish you all the best of luck as you go off into your professional life. I, kn- I know you're going to change the world. Gagum. Gagum.